Hi, Jerry Ford here, and welcome to my podcast. In tonight's episode, it's part two of Glenn Phillips of the Hampton Grease Band. But right now, it's time to get bent. Thank you. 
Too Many Questions by Pent Music. Jerry Ford here. Time now to go into our second part and the final part of an interview I did in 2009 with Mr. Glenn Phillips of the Hampton Grease Band. A little recap here. Glenn is a critically acclaimed guitarist and composer who's released over 20 albums in the last 50 years. As a founding member and songwriter of the Hampton Grease Band, he played with countless artists, including John Lennon, Frank Zappa, The Grateful Dead, Fleetwood Mac, The Allman Brothers, Jimi Hendrix, and more. A very interesting guy with a lot to say. So let's get back to Glenn Phillips. Not everybody wants their work to be a product. Right. Well, I don't know. I don't know if you're around. I don't know how old you are. Prior, in the 50s, in the late 50s, there was a movement by uh, people like Dick Clark and these people to try to control the entire music business by packaging artists and, you know, signing them to contracts supplying the material, having a, having control over the publishing, the record deal and everything. And they created these fabricated artists like Pat Boone, Fabian, um, Paul, Paul Anka, uh, just these people that were teen idols. And, and that's what the Beatles and the English invasion was sort of a, uh, what drove that, because that was people saying, no, we want real music and real bands who, who play their own music and do this. And so they tried to do this sort of corporately controlled music, very much like what's now back in the 50s, but it didn't work. The public revolted, and that's what the British invasion was about. Well, now you see this stuff. You see this American Idol stuff. You see people like Simon Cowell. He's, this guy is just the asshole that tried to take over the business in the 50s, but it didn't work, but now it's working. Now they're getting away with it. They, You know, they just manufacture this stuff, they've got these people signed to these contracts, they control the publishing, the record deals, the artists, everything, and they're just raking in millions of dollars, and they're getting away with it, and it's, uh, it's not very, it's not, <laughs> it's not very encouraging for a lot of people, it's, it's easy to look at that and go, geez, music is a cesspool, who wants to get involved with this? But, then you can go on MySpace and you start going around and, and listening to all this stuff and you hear this real music coming out of all these people and it can be very inspiring. The problem, of course, is that a lot of people in day-to-day -day life don't have the time or the inclination to hunt this other stuff up. Makes me think of the old days where you listened to AM radio. If that's all you listened to, you heard the same 40 songs right. over and over and over. And then all of a sudden, the cool and groovy people started discovering FM radio. Yeah. And what a change it was right. until the man took over the FM radio exactly. and turned that into a product. They've taken all the subculture, all the pop culture and everything, and they turned it into a product. Yes. So they're under all the, you know, our fa songs to me that are sacred. I mean, I mean seriously, I mean, other cultures, music is sacred. You know, well, my culture is the hippie folklore or whatever. I hear a, a Beatles song under a commercial, that's sacrilege to me. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so don't get me on my soapbox. <laughs> no, well, I, I, I know exactly what you're talking about, and I relate to it very much, and they've, it's, uh, it's a real struggle going on in our culture right now. Well, I think the Internet is providing the new 
underground? Yes, it is. You have to, you know, I don't want to get real religious, but just to use an analogy, they say that you have to seek the Lord, but the devil, you know, he's right there on your ass. Enough said in that arena. <laughs> well, it's um, it's been it, it's been both. Like I said, it's been a, a depressing time in a lot of ways, but it's also been inspiring because I've discovered, you know, what there what is happening on the internet and what is there. Uh, the only downside of of this this switch in the way this stuff is done is the fact that it records are expensive to make in general. Now, not all records are expensive to make, but I like for instance, I still record on tape on two inch tape. And you go in a studio and re- record on two-inch tape just because that's what sounds best to me. And it is getting increasingly more difficult to make records like that because they're they're expensive to make, and uh, and they're getting more expensive to make like that rather than less expensive. And so that's that's one of the downsides and one of the things that um, I'm having to deal with. How do I? How much money can I? Can you afford to lose every time you make a record? Because it does, it is getting more expensive to make them the way that I like to make them. Maybe I'll just have to change the way I make them. I don't know. I'm just sort of feeling this out as I go along. Well, that's kind of, yeah. I mean, it's the uh, the old days. A craftsman was, you know, shoes. Let's take shoes as an example. A man made a pair of shoes. He was proud of that pair of shoes. He right. worked very hard on every stitch and every nail. And now they just run them to a conveyor belt, you know, or, or worse yet, a sweatshop in Yugoslavia or someplace. Well, it, it, I think it has an effect on people. I think our culture and the, the pride that people take in what they do and their work does have an effect on our culture as a whole, and, and you just see that across the board. There's just sort of this mindset that it doesn't matter what the shoes are like. It doesn't matter what the music's like. The music's just a product. Nobody's listening to it. It all sucks. Everything on the radio sucks. So what difference does it make? You know, all the shoes suck. So get a shitty pair of shoes, and who cares? You know, it just it it's just not the direction you want to take things in. It has far-reaching repercussions on everything. Somewhere along the line, they decided the art form was the marketing and not the content, and that's what it's all become about. It's all become about marketing. And when it all becomes about marketing, it no longer matters what you're selling. And that's a problem. You can just, you see it across the board. It, look, it's not just music. Uh, look at the car industry. Look at the American car industry, what's happened. It's the same mindset. That's what caused the collapse of the automotive industry in America. It's just, it's, it, it's affected everything. And you just, culture is part of that. And so are these other things. So is how the guy makes the shoes. They, you know, it's just taking pride in what you do simply for the sake of that. You know, the creative process ultimately is its own reward. There's nothing you're going to get back from music any greater than the reward of just the process of creating it and taking pride in what you're doing. And I've... You know, I've I've gone from being on putting records out myself to having records on major labels to playing in the smallest club you can imagine to playing at a pop festival with 150,000 people there. It none of that matters. None of that compares with the creative process itself and the inherent rewards that lie therein. And you just don't ever want to lose sight of that. 
music started in the jungle beating on a log. Right. What's progress? Well, progress is, you know, it's funny because uh, progress at this point is being determined by technology, but that in turn is, is it's not necessarily for our benefits. Uh, for instance, what's happened in music is the technology has moved very much in the direction of what's convenient and what's fast in terms of recorded music. And the concept of, the, the, the consideration of the quality is just gone out the window. And it's, it's moving in a, in a direction that benefits the people that manufacture these, this stuff and are selling the stuff, but it doesn't necessarily benefit the listener. And it's, it's funny to see this going. You know, a lot of people think that they get, for instance, that music is all free now. Music isn't free. People are paying an enormous amount of money for music, but none of it goes to the musicians. They're just paying for the delivery systems. They're paying for the computers to deliver this stuff, and they're paying for the high-speed access to deliver it. It's kind of the equivalent, if you can imagine, when we were, uh, like, say, go back to a band like the Beatles. If when we were buying, you know, when the Beatles were around, that we never bought records. That what we did, the only thing we ever bought were stereos. And the records were all given away with the stereos, and none of the money ever went to the Beatles. All the money went to the people who just made the stereos. That's the situation you've got right now. There's an enormous amount of money being generated by content on the Internet. But very, very little of it is going to any of the people who are providing the content. And on that note, I think it's important that people realize that what they're downloading from the Internet, quality-wise, is nothing compared to what they get when they spend a little cash in a store. Right. Not only is it you know, going to perpetuate an artist to be creative and fed and feed his family a it's also they're going to get a better product. If well, it, it's just, it, it, it is going to have an effect on things. Now, this is not an anti-Internet tirade on my part, because like I said, there's lots of things about the Internet going on MySpace, discovering the wealth of incredible music that exists there has been a real uh, inspiration and, and had a very positive effect on me. And so I don't want to diminish that at all. So when I'm talking about what's going on with this stuff, I'm only talking about the people who were benefiting from this stuff and, and excluding any considerations for the people who provide the content. And that's pretty much the situation we're in. And if, if you go back and look at classic albums, for instance, just take some of the most popular acts from when I grew up, when I was growing up, a band like the Beatles. Their greatest, or a guy like Bob Dylan, their greatest records were made six or seven records down the road. You know, the Beatles, when they made Revolver, that, that wasn't their first record. It was, you know, Blonde on Blonde wasn't Dylan's first record. Hat Sounds wasn't the Beach Boys' first record. These are people who were able to go in and record and develop what they do. They were able to find an audience. This stuff was able to build and grow into something spectacular. And that's the way great art is. It usually develops like that. It doesn't just happen at the snap of a finger. And I think what's happening now is you've got people, you've got artists and people on MySpace who are struggling to do this and to find a way to do this. 
um, and I'm a, and I'm another one of them. But it is more difficult now than it used to be. I will say that. You know, records were never big money-making propositions for anybody but the most successful artists. Um, but you could break even. You know, I was always able to go in and make a record and put it out and get enough money back to go in and make another record. And those days seem to be behind us. And it's bound to have an effect. I think the record industry did this to themselves. I think they painted, they, they, they became so corporately controlled that nobody cared about them anymore. They just, they, they did the same thing the car manufacturers did. They just put out a shitty product. And people stop listening. You know, when you're talking about the radio, God, I mean, radio has turned into, you know, I can't believe the stuff I used to hear in the radio growing up. We used to turn on the radio and this great music would come out of it. Now I get in the car and I try to listen to the radio and it's just awful. Then I go on MySpace and I listen, I go around and I'm just answering people's friends' requests and going to listen to their music. And I'm just going, you know, nine out of ten of these groups that I'm going and listening to are much better than anything I'm hearing on the radio. Why is that? Because the people in the industry have their heads up their ass. Right. <laughs> but you know, and but I see the internet as a wonderful venue, new venue, yeah. especially for old people like you and I. Right. We can go on the road without leaving the house. <laughs> right. Well, it's one of the things I really do love about MySpace is that, for the most part. You, 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 there's just most people there are just they just want a place to put their music and that's that mm-hmm. and th- and they're just you know there's a kind of what's growing out of it is this sort of thing like I was talking about where people are just being unafraid to be themselves and to let their music be a reflection of who they are rather than thinking I'm going to make it big with this this is going to be my big shot in. and and that's where you f- People who are unafraid to be themselves, that's where you find the great art. Frank Zappa comes to mind. Lord Buckley. Right. People that stuck their necks out a little bit. Well, you guys were right there beside him. Well, we were actually friends with Frank. We were assigned with his label to do a second record, which the band ended up breaking up. We did play with Frank at the uh, Fillmore East the weekend that John Lennon and Yoko Ono sat in with him. And, you know, we were close with Frank. I was actually up in Frank's dressing room playing guitar with him when John Lennon came in. And it was, uh, it was a neat time to be around because there was that sort of... He was, he, Frank was a big supporter of the Grease Band, and there was, uh, there was that kind of community. We got the job at the Fillmore both because of Frank, and Dwayne Allman was a really big fan of the band, and they had both talked to Bill Graham about, about us, and Bill hired us sight unseen to play the Fillmore simply based on their recommendations. Oh, but, okay, and Zappa and Beefheart and all those, you know. Oh, yeah, we did shows with, we did a lot of shows with Beefheart. They were incredible. <laughs> Beefheart never got rich either. No, no. Um, he, he uh, although, you know, they were certainly able to keep the record, making records and having them come out and have an audience. It was a time... I guess what was good at that point was it was before the record industry had been completely taken over by what are commonly referred to as bean counters. You had people at these record labels who were genuine music fans, people like yourself, people, you know, just people who cared about 
who were into music, and that's why you would see, you know, someone like Beefheart coming out with records on a major label. I mean, you certainly wouldn't see that today. You know, there were these guys that, that were at these labels, although over the years they increasingly got squeezed out. But the Beefheart thing was great. We, the Grease Band played with him. Um, I actually toured with him. Uh, my band toured with him in the uh, 80s when he did his last tour. You know, he's pretty much disappeared since then, as far as from the public stage. So you, you're working on a new album now. Yeah, I'm working on a new record, but that doesn't mean you can expect anything anytime soon. <laughs> okay, well, that's good. Uh, you know, I, you I take my time on this stuff. Uh-huh. Well, and what is what would you say would be your uh, artistic motivation? Or is, I mean, is it just to uh, leave a good artistic trail? I think the greatest art, and that's not to say that my art is the greatest art, but the greatest art that I found is usually someone, you know, taking a journey of self-discovery introspection, reaching in, pulling out something that's real, and being unafraid to express it and show it. And so for me, that's throughout the course of my life, that's just what I've tried to do with music, and it's a very intuitive process, and you just have to feel your way through it, and it's changed. The music has changed over the years because I've changed as a person. I can hear the connection for instance, between when I listen to Angel Sparks or my first record, Lost at Sea, or even the Grease Band, I can very much hear that they were done by the same people, by the same person, but they're, but, the, but it's very different. The music is very different. It's just because you just, you do change as, as you get older, as you go through life. Your perspective changes, what you're aware of, what you can see. And so I just try to connect to this process and, and, and wade my way through it. And it's not, it's not something you can write down or easily describe. It's a process of putting things on tape and just intuitively responding, this, this is right, this isn't right. And I don't even try to figure out why it is or isn't right. I just trust the thing. You know, you've got to rely on your intuition. Well, I think it was just, for me, it was a matter of survival. You know, I was just a... I had a... You know, when I was younger... I guess the things that shaped me the most, my parents were both alcoholics. I love my parents. They were terrific people. But as I mentioned earlier, my dad ended up killing himself. I also, when I was in high school, my girlfriend got pregnant, and the daughter, the girl, the daughter that we had was adopted. And for me, those were very traumatic experiences at the time. Now, when I look back at them now, I see them as things that had a very positive effect on my life. But at the time, they were very traumatic. And for me, music, uh, finding a way to express personally and emotionally what I was going through became a means of survival for me. And that's remained throughout my life. It's just a way to make sense of life. It's a way to kind of go inside yourself and find something that makes you able to see things on a different level. For instance, my father's suicide, which of course was a very traumatic thing, but now when I look at it, I can see that it's the thing that had this tremendous positive effect on my life. It affected the choices I've made through my life, my priorities, what I thought was important, what I didn't concern myself with. You know, I think the fact that my dad was a very successful businessman and ended up killing himself on his 50th birthday had a big influence on 
what I value and what my priorities are and why I've remained true over these 40 years to just continuing to make music that seems real to me and that seems meaningful as opposed to gauging it on whether it sells or not. Admirable approach. Kind of like, what do you want, a Strat or a Gibson? <laughs> what do you play? Well, it's a, uh, it's a, it was originally a Gibson L6, but I pulled everything out of it. All, you know, all the, uh, it's just heavily customized. Uh, I don't know how much you want to get into guitar gear, but it, it's got a, uh, the pickups, for instance, are totally different. The front pickup is an original PAF pickup from the late 50s. It gets the patent applied for. The back pickup is a Telecaster pickup. I, I put a Fender Jazz Master Vibrato arm on it. It's got five mini toggle switches that do a variety of things wiring in the wiring that I've worked out over the years. So it's just a real customized guitar. I've, I've always been like that where I tend to take guitars apart and you know, I have a certain sound in my head that I'm hearing, and it's always this thing of, like, trying to find it and get the guitar to, to do what I want it to do. And <laughs> when I was younger, it didn't always, it wasn't always the smartest thing to do. One of the, the one guitar that I used to play in the Grease Band was a, an original Gibson Flying V, which they only made about 100 of. And I just tore it to pieces. I mean, I, I, I hacked it all up. I had popsicle sticks holding the pickups in, you know. You know, and the guitars nowadays, those will go for like $100,000, so it probably wasn't the smartest business move. But I've always, you know, seen guitars as like tools. I'm not a, I don't get like, collect guitars and put them in glass. You know what I mean? I just, for me, they're like things that you use. Well, it was when I was growing up, I was, you know, it was in this era when all these guitars now that are highly collectible are priced beyond anybody's range except for, I guess guitar collectors or doctors and lawyers, but like that Flying V that I had that would sell for $100,000, now I got for $110. You know, and these Sunburst Les Pauls, we used to get them for a couple hundred dollars, mm -hmm. which is mind-boggling to think of now, but they were just all floating around. Well, that's another industry to keep your eye on, though, kiddies that are listening in, <laughs> future musicians, you don't let them... You know, you don't have to go out and spend twelve thousand dollars on a Fender Strat to make music. No, and well, there and and plus another thing to realize about the industry: whenever they're marketing something as collectible, it's no longer collectible. You know, these these collectible guitars that they're reissuing, and there's nothing wrong with reissuing them, but the prices are incredibly inflated because they're trying to play into people's expectations that these guitars are some somehow going to elevate value the same way the originals did. That's not going to happen. The reason these original guitars have become worth so much is because there were so few of them. There were so few manufacturers and there was such a high demand, but there's just an unbelievable amount of these guitars being put out now and they just keep marketing you know, these Les Pauls as a reissue of this collectible guitar, but it's not going to increase in value. If you want the guitar and it's worth that much to you, that's fine. But if you're expecting it to become worth more over the years, it's just not going to happen. See, and I did a workshop at one time in California years ago where we stressed the point that you didn't have to spend a whole lot of money to make music just because, or, you know, just because a person couldn't. And they had the desire to play, you know. We got into making homemade instruments and 
you know, this is before the internet was handy. You know, we actually went to the library uh-huh. and looked up some old jug band type stuff. And that's what people did in the old days. You know, we had a blast. That's great. And people forget, you know, that music. You know, I mean, the industry has turned it into a product. Blah blah blah. But you know, music original was just sitting on the back porch, picking and grinning and sharing stories and passing down legends and picking cotton or whatever. Right. You know? And uh, we can't lose that. Well, I don't think it has been lost, and and uh, and I think that you know, MySpace is one of the places that it's being done. But I think it's an important place where it's being done, where you have a whole community of musicians worldwide creating a new sense of they're they're creating new stories, and they're creating a new mythos that's going to go on. And it's, but it's, it's not happening in the traditional places. You know, music really isn't happening on radio. It's not happening in the record industry. It certainly isn't happening on television. MTV. And it, but it is <laughs> happening here, and that's what matters, is that it's found a place to happen, and it is really happening. Once again, it comes back to the concept of marketing being more important than content. Well, Glenn... This has been amazing. Yeah, it's been fun talking. If you need to talk anymore, just let me know or call me up if you okay. want to go any further. I'm into it. It'd be fun. But I, it was great talking to you, and I hope we get to meet in person at some point. Okay. Take care of yourself. Enjoy your evening. Don't work right. too hard. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to Mr. Glenn Phillips of the Hampton Grease Band. I want to thank Glenn for that wonderful, informative interview. Next time on Jerry Ford's podcast, it's going to be the one, the only, Sweet Pants Bunk Gardener. That's right, Bunk Gardener of the Mothers of Invention. It's very special. In 2011, I collaborated with John Larson of Sonic Entertainment to make a very, very special interview happen with Mr. Bunk Gardener. We're going to feature that. So check it out next time. Till then, take care. Thanks for being there. I'm out of here.